And today I retire from pro football. Probably when I retire, when that eventually happens one day, I'll be able to sit back and say, you know what? Pretty proud. What can I say? Mamba out. And that is going to be it for Derek Jeter. The What's Next Podcast, where every hour is happy hour. Welcome to the What's Next Podcast. Whether you're about to tee off on the golf course, sitting on the beach, or napping on the couch, anywhere but the office, this podcast is for you. If you're still working, turn this podcast off right away. Unless, of course, you're pondering retirement or a sabbatical. So, Jason, we have, uh, I would say, probably in all of our episode planning, our most exciting one. We have both of our dads here today. Nepotism is alive and well. We had the wives on the last podcast or the last season, and now we got our fathers. It's all who you know in this world, <laughs> I guess, right? Uh, something you guys both probably taught us. But um, they retired many years earlier than we did, and so we're going to talk to both of our dads and get their experience and their stories about their retirement. And. You know, we heard from you, our listeners, that one of the things that you're really interested in for season two and beyond and kind of the theme we're going to have for this year is telling people's retirement stories. So you're going to get to hear both of our fathers kind of share a little bit about their work experience and background, but also about how they thought about retirement, what they did in retirement. So kind of their story. And we're looking forward to sharing their stories with you today and then hopefully others as we go through the season. But first, what time is it, Jason? It's happy hour. So we have to have a drink. And today, we are drinking a vodka. It is a lime-flavored vodka, Deep Eddie Lime Vodka. Dad, why don't you tell folks why we might be drinking lime vodka? Well, I think we're drinking lime vodka in uh, recognition of the time that I was expelled from high school. (laughs) I uh, had brought uh, lime-flavored vodka and orange-flavored vodka in the trunk of my car to uh, high school and uh, some of my friends knew it was in the trunk. I didn't happen to be there at the time, I was in class, but about five or six of them broke into my car and started fighting over the vodka and created a fuss and the principal came out and decided to expel all of those boys as well as me. Even though, <laughs> even though I wasn't part of the group, I, had, I was guilty of having brought the, the, uh, the liquor onto the campus which was not approved. Well, Ron, I, I think this is actually probably a better story than the retirement story. So what were you doing bringing vodka onto campus? Let's start with that. Were you, were you a day drinker growing up? No, I actually wasn't much of a drinker because I got uh, drunk one time and got so sick that I, I really stopped drinking after that. But I was a source of, uh, of liquor for... Uh, friends, which made me pretty popular. I bet I did. <laughs> and I had a friend who uh, was old enough to be able to buy it for me. So uh, I kept it in my car. I couldn't keep it at home, of course. I kept it in the trunk of my car and uh, made it available to my friends. Once again, it's who you know. It's, it's right? Well, the best part of this story, I think, besides all the illegal activity of br- driving around with alcohol as a minor and bringing it to school, is that dad loves to share this story with his grandkids, which first time he told it, Laura and I nearly had a heart attack as he's sharing this example of how he brings booze to school. 
But then he follows it up with other stories around the fact that he really didn't study in school or in college, and he really spent most of his time playing poker in college versus studying and going to class. It's just these great life examples that he's been setting for the grandkids that make us so excited. All right, so, so wait, wait, wait a minute. Now, I, I'm not the only one to set this kind of example. I just didn't tell them about it. You're the one who told okay, them about well, it. Well, yeah, I did. But, but I think they know that Jason was a pretty heavy gambler when he was in high school also. Uh, I may have been in the genes. I don't know. but uh, I think we're going to let's let's use this as our segue into this, because, you know, the interesting thing for me is, Ron, I've known you for a long time and I, I feel I know you pretty well and I know a lot about you. This I didn't know. But but then what Jason says, piggybacking on that, how do you go from this life of delinquency and crime and end up at Harvard Business School? Let's because we're going to we're going to start to get into your career. But tell me how that happens. Well, I guess I was just very lucky because I never would qualify for entrance with the day's requirements. But uh, when I uh, was in college and uh, decided that I wanted to go for an MBA, which was in the senior semester, my senior year, um, I took the graduate record exam and I got a very high score on that. And that, <clears throat> that encouraged me to apply and to try and get into graduate school. And... Um, I was pretty creative too, I think, with my applications, because I, I actually applied to several schools. And in my applications, I made a point of pointing out that I recognized the errors of my way over Did my... you tell them the vodka story? or did That, <laughs> that was his day? college essay for Harvard. <laughs> yeah. They needed someone to bring the booze to these kids. <laughs> no, I just talked about not having studied, not having gone to class in college. I, I basically had full-time jobs for uh, three of my years in college. And... Um, and I promised that I was wanting to do better and that I would do better. And uh, I just needed an opportunity to prove myself. And that was that together with my high uh, score on the graduate record exam seemed to get me into several of the top graduate schools. The mea culpa strategy. That's, exactly. <laughs> right. As I say, I, I, I happen to agree with what you said is I don't think that would work today. <laughs> so, Peter, tell us you know, your start to your career. Now, obviously, you know, you uh, had a great art supply business, but how did you get into that? How does it all fit together in terms of starting off your business career? I ran track throughout high school and college. And after graduating Cornell School of Hotel Administration, I got a job because I was running a track meet in Israel. Okay. So I got a job at the Sheraton Tel Aviv. I think I may have stayed at that hotel, actually. Well? It's still around. There's definitely a Sheraton there now. If the food was good, because <laughs> of him. I don't know. It's been a lot of years since I've been back. But that got me involved in the world of the hotel industry. And from there, I came back and got enough of a taste to know that you're really married to the hotel industry, or you're married to a wife and have a family. And I decided the hotel industry was not for me. And my future father-in-law said, why don't you try the art supply business? I started it in 1929 during the depression and it's time for me to get out. And I thought about it and I said, business is about dealing with people, whether you're selling a paintbrush or a cup of coffee. And so I married the boss's daughter. <laughs> Another. It's all about who you know, right? We keep coming back to that lesson. <laughs> all right, so, so Ron, for your, I mean, I kid you about Harvard, but 
you got your MBA at Harvard, and, and then I, I know that you ran cruise cruise lines for a living. But what, so what what was your step? How did you get towards that? What was your first job, and, and how did you end up in that track? Well, uh, after I got my MBA, I stayed and worked for a year on the faculty at Harvard writing cases for classwork. And one of the cases I wrote was on Northeast Airlines selection of a new ad agency. Okay. During the course of that, they got to know me, I got to know them, and uh, they had an opening for our Director of Marketing Research and Planning, and they made me an offer. And uh, I decided to accept it. It seemed like an interesting industry, an interesting opportunity. And that got me into the travel industry, which eventually led into various aspects of travel and hospitality businesses. What was the, what was the airline called? Northeast Airlines. It was the last major trunk carrier in the industry at that time. And it was eventually acquired by Delta Airlines. It was supposed to be acquired by Northwest at the time I was with Northeast. And I didn't, didn't really want to go to Minneapolis. And uh, um, I'd actually been part of the transition team and and had experienced some of the weather in Minneapolis. and It was worse than Boston. <laughs> right. And some of the conditions under the uh, president out there, Nairop, there were, there were no doors on the toilet stalls in the bathrooms because he didn't want people hiding out in there and taking too much time wow. from their, away from their jobs. I've never heard that as a decision criteria for whether you accept a job <laughs> yeah. or not, but very a, a very important one, apparently. Sure. Check out the bathrooms before, when you're interviewing. I like it. There was a fellow named Nairop who... Uh, it was very proud of being very uh, penny-wise and uh, very economical. <laughs> so that's, that's how I got into the industry. And uh, my boss at Northeast Airlines had moved to Pan Am, and he offered to uh, take me with him and to go to Pan Am. And that's how I got to Pan Am. So your first airline doesn't exist, and your second airline doesn't exist. But they've all been acquired by Delta, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. I hope your Delta. I still hope you still have that Delta stock. That's uh... no, no. I never had that. But I, I tell you, actually, if you really look closely at my biography, you'll find a trail of companies that went out of business or that were turnaround situations, which was something that I was always fascinated by. I, I'm not good at maintaining the status quo. I want to either start something new, which I did in a few cases, or help a company turn around from its problems, and that. That was what attracted me to different companies. So, Peter, you married into the art supply business. And tell us about kind of what was the what was the business like then and kind of what was your first role and kind of what did you do? I'm going to walk backwards a little bit okay. and, and piggyback on a previous comment. Uh, at Cornell, every summer, hotels and cruise ship lines came to recruit us. And Pan Am, who most of our readers, listeners don't know, existed because the airline's out a long time, uh, recruited at Cornell. They wanted 12 flight stewards for the summer to fly over to Europe and back. Well, needless to say, of the 300 hotelies, we all applied. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why, but I was one of the 12 selected. However, I had to pass a physical which meant going out to JFK Airport over Easter break and taking a physical. Well, I had bad eyes then and I have worse eyes now. And I had to run a track meet down in Austin, Texas. So I immediately went to some of my buddies that had gotten a selection and said, do me a favor and help me memorize the eye chart. <laughs> so I gave them 
each a postcard, and I said, you write down the first line, you write down the second line, <laughs> mail them to my home in Rochelle, New York. I'll memorize it and go down to Pan Am and pass the test. So I got home from the track meet, and my mother says, what kind of people you hang out with? I said, what do you mean? She says, I got all these postcards. And there were a lot of profanity on there because <laughs> they were using an eye chart. It's not an eye chart, right. they were using a machine. So the eye chart didn't help me memorize anything. <laughs> so I ended up not getting the job because I couldn't pass the physical. Oh no. But tell us about the art supply business. How did that all get, once you got started there, you married into the family, where did you go from there? I went to 25 West 45th Street. My, my great father-in-law, he was a great teacher and human being put me in the basement and receiving and I kind of worked my way up and got involved in sales because we were an industrial art supply company. We didn't worry about Sunday painters. We catered to people like IBM and Delta's art department right. and Harvard's art department and so on and so forth. And uh, so I liked selling and I built the company up that way. And then to my dismay, found out, which is a long story I won't bore you with, found out that computers were entering the world of design and they were going to obsolete art supplies at some time in the future. So I went to my father-in-law who at that time would come in and go to work every day and buy a cup of coffee the New York Times, sit around for a couple of hours and then get on the Long Island Railroad and go home. <laughs> And uh, I went to him and said, Pop, I think we got problems on the horizon. I explained what was happening. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to sell the company. And he said, if that's what you want to do, that's fine with me. He said, but I'd like a little bit of proof. So I found a fellow named Mills Davis in Washington, D.C. in the early 80s that was into computer graphics. And I said, how much will you charge us to do a study? on the future of art supplies, and he said $50,000. That was a lot of money. Right. So I got 10 non-competing art suppliers and <coughs> manufacturers to each pony up $5,000. And six months later, he called us and said, I've got your answers. We flew down to DC. And he says, you've got between three to five years before 50% of your product lines are gone, obsolete. So that clinched the deal, and uh, the rest is history. I'm out here, and our supply industry <laughs> is gone. So, Ron, towards the end of your career, what, like, wh where did you end up? Where was the last stop or two in your career before you decided to get? And, and we'll talk more about what you actually did when you retired, but before you actually decided to take the last step of maybe not full retirement, but of not working for basically full time? Well, I, uh, I guess my last uh, job as an employee was with uh, Windstar Cruises. And uh, that lasted until they were acquired by Holland America. And that would have been about 1991, 92, something like that. And at that point, I started uh, being a consultant to companies in the hospitality industry. And um, I did that for about 10 years. And I was a, a, a hands-on type of consultant, not one that specialized in specific deliverables and projects, but rather uh, worked 
in a, a traditional or conventional kind of position on a part-time basis. I filled the position. Interim management. In, interim management. Right. That was it. That was what it was called, interim management. Okay. And um, I did that for a number of companies in the uh, travel and hospitality industry, in the cruise industry, and in the, and even in a hotel company, a, a, a resort in the Bahamas. I ran their sales and marketing office in Miami for the U.S. while also working for other companies. But the last uh, position I had as an independent contractor would have been um, probably as president of Crown Cruise Line and Commodore Cruise Line. Both of them were owned by the same company. And just before that, I had been uh, pretty much full-time, but also as an independent contractor with the World of Residency, which was the condominium ship where people buy and own their own apartment on board the ship. Huh. Interesting. And then, all right, so then, so that's where you, so you got your, you sort of finished working for the big company. Then you did the project interim-based thing, mm -hmm. 10 years. So what was the next step? In other words, what made you decide, okay, I'm ready to really scale it back now and quote unquote retire, or as your son calls it, go on the never-ending sabbatical? Well, the, the opportunities for continued interim management were becoming slimmer all the time because uh, there were fewer startups, fewer turnaround situations to try to work on. But uh, also, I had been a partner with a fellow in a business market research survey business where we surveyed the affluent uh, a couple of times a year. And he passed away very, very soon after we started the business. And I acquired his shares uh, from his wife and decided to continue the business on my own. And that was not a full-time effort. It was twice a year I did a survey and then I decided to start selling mailing lists of very wealthy people. And that wasn't a, a full-time job either. So both of those activities kind of kept me off the street, kept me uh, fairly busy, made a little money, became a tax haven, and uh, that, that's how I got into the business. I got in and started reti being retired, basically, at 60 years old. Yeah. So, Peter, you sold your business. It sounded like this in the 80s. Was this the beginning of retirement for you, or what, how did, what happened when you sold the business? It was. I sold the business in 1987, 88, I guess, when I was 46, 47 years old. Early in life. Mm. Correct. And we saw that this was a time to sell because the industry was going through a decline uh, and really doesn't exist anymore. And so it was time to go and look for a place to settle, so to speak. And Did you want to retire young in life? Like, what was your retirement plan? My retirement plan was, I guess, to, to find something that would make my wife and myself happy. And my in-laws used to go to Scottsdale, Arizona, on vacation every year and they used to beg me to bring the boys out. <laughs> Kenneth and his brother Judd who were young, seven, eight, nine, ten years old at the time. And I thought that Arizona where they would winter was just a place where camels ran in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> and uh, so finally they wore us down and we came out one winter for a week. I got off the plane and I fell in love with the desert without the camels. Um, <laughs> immediately and I said to Judy I said we're going to buy a house out here and sell and so we just did that and folded up our tents and moved to Scottsdale Arizona. So I heard there was a funny story about when you folded up your tents and moved to Arizona like tell us about Ken grad maybe around his graduation and like then the moving trucks hit what's the story there? Ken tells a great story about it. 
Well, you may tell a better one than I do. So. <laughs> well, I, just my memory of it is I, I you know, I, I think I graduated on a Thursday or something, maybe a Friday, I can't remember. But we had a, what you called the house wrecking party on Saturday night. And then Sunday, the, uh, the moving truck showed up. But you go in through this period where you called it a house wrecking party because my friends who weren't the most, uh, you know, they, they had a Ron Kurtz-like they background. They were dad's friends, That's yeah, right. Apparently. They're the kind of guys you would have hung out with, Ron, <laughs> uh, with, your, with, your, with your past. But uh, you basically said to my friends, you can do whatever you want to the house because we don't live here anymore. And like I said, this moving truck showed up on a Sunday and you guys disappeared for... Uh, is this Ken's just it? blissful memory of the past or is this, this is the real story? <laughs> To me, there isn't much to the story. <laughs> the better story was when, when Ken and his brother came out to help us once we had gotten there. I sent him out to the desert to start cleaning some brush away, and Kenneth and Chud looked at me and said, we're not so sure we're happy out here, but in any case, <laughs> Kenneth and I need haircuts. So we went out to Carefree, Arizona, and looked in the yellow pages for a barber, and this is a while ago, and uh, we found this place and it said pet grooming, etc. So Kenneth thought that's where I was going for a haircut. And he said, Dad, I'm not getting out of the car. And he promptly locked the doors to the car and I went and I found that there was actually a barber shop. Got my haircut, but Kenneth preferred not to take the chance and he never got out of the car. The barber shop that shared space with the pet groomer, so let's uh I mean, Ken is very particular about his hair, even to this day. You can tell. <laughs> so, but but there is a twist to the to the retirement story because you went and retired, and I think what's different between you and Ron's story is Ron has always kept his hands in the business world. But when you retired, you cut the cord for a period of time. But then, in, isn't it a line in the uh, Godfather where they pulled you back in? What happened there? Well. I guess. I got pulled back in because the guy I sold it to, I got paid out and he leveraged the, the business and uh, he couldn't pay his bills so the banks called me up and said, come on back. <coughs> and I had no great desire to leave this new home in Arizona. By the same token, this was a great family business, we cared about our people. There were about 200 of them and I didn't want to see them all out of work. So I came back and the banks gave me a nice contract and I put the company back on its feet again, went back to Arizona and set it up so two of my key people would get a chance to run the company. Well, P.S., the banks called me up and said they'd done a lousy job. We want you to come back again. We'll take care of you. And I said, okay, because the people were still there. So uh, I guess it was the third time around that things worked out okay. So you were kind of like Tom Brady, retired, came back, thought about retiring, came back, just kept going in that cycle. Or Bob Iger, the Disney CEO, is back. You were you were starting a trend back then. One difference between Tom Brady is that my wife is a lot prettier than his wife, <laughs> <laughs> and she stayed with you. So Ron, what was so you sort of kept your hands in the business world. So with the time that you sort of created for yourself when you stop working and doing those projects. How did you fill your time? Did you find hobbies or things to do or, you know, where did you spend your time? 
Actually, um, I didn't have a lot of other interests. I've always been interested in current affairs and politics. I do a lot of reading uh, to stay current on that. Not books, but uh, newspapers and so forth. Prolific op-ed writer. <laughs> yeah, I do write <laughs> a few letters to the editor. Um, the, are, the any, business... are any of them published? I'm sorry? Are any of them published? Oh, yeah, yeah I, I just recently had something published in the New York Times. Yeah. He, oh, maxes out. Huh? he maxes out every year the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. You're only allowed a certain number, and he maxes it out every year. <laughs> And, it, and then he goes nationwide. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, we used to travel. We liked to take the family on trips. We All 11 of us would sometimes go on a trip together. Uh, my wife and I liked to travel. Um, the business uh, for a few years kept me pretty busy until I stopped doing the surveys. The surveys were time consuming. Um, let, me, let me just stop you for a second. On the travel, to me, you're, you're a pro because of what you did for a living. So you know the places to go and things like that. So when you did travel and take these trips with your family, did you go on cruise lines? Is that something you continued? And where were the best places that you went to that you'd recommend for other people? We just did a travel episode. Right. Well, uh, I, I encouraged them to go on cruises and we went on a couple of them, but after a while, the, the, the kids and the and they, even the, our, our children decided that they'd rather do something else, you know. So we went to different places. We went to Costa Rica, and we rented a house down there. We uh, went to, what was the place in Virginia that we went to where we rented a house? Uh, the big famous uh, resort there. Um, I can never remember the name of it. I just figured since you were in the cruise business and these cruises went to these incredible places, oh, then you would have the inside scoop on these things. Well, my Betty and I did a lot of cruising. We did uh, Greek islands. We did China. We did uh, the Mediterranean. We did Spain and Portugal. I mean, yeah, we, we cruised all over. Of course, we did the Caribbean quite a bit. Um, uh, but um, uh, we tried to, to get a mixture of things. And... Um, also, I found that paying bills and making deposits uh, took a lot longer than it used to. After <laughs> Depends I how big the deposits are, right? Well, and how many checks you have, right. how many banks you go to, and how many different accounts. Right. I mean, yeah. we had, we had you know, some inherited some real estate, and I kind of watched the stock market some. And we, so it, it, and I, it just took time. And it, it did take longer because I'd be more careful about making mistakes, you know, as I got older. So you were so, talking about the Greenbrier before. Greenbrier. Right, in West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. see, Betty and I had gone to the Greenbrier for a long weekend one time, and I felt that that was such an iconic, traditional resort that I really wanted to expose the grandkids to it. Unfortunately, they were already too old to appreciate what the Greenbrier has to offer, but uh, it, it's an incredible resort, fantastic resort. And um, I guess we went to some places in the Caribbean, too, at different times. We did Alaska. We did, oh, that's right, we did Alaska, Alaska Cruise. Yeah, we... We've been all over, all over. And Peter, what about you? Like the biggest thing that our listeners always ask about or are thinking about as they go into retirement is how, how did you spend your time? Like what are your hobbies? What are your interests? Well, first I want to go back to Ron and ask what was the subject of all your <laughs> letters to the editor? Be careful what you ask here. <laughs> this may take a while. We can hit that after. Actually, over time, I evolved from being a Barry Goldwater arch conservative when I was younger, to a centrist or a moderate, and now I'm somewhat of a Democrat, and much to the chagrin of many of my friends. And so I, from time to time, have to point out the inequities of Republican activities and efforts. But also, uh, I have a strong feeling about foreign policy, and, and right now my, uh, my big thing is taking care of Ukraine and giving them proper support so that they can actually defeat the Russians.
Well, that's certainly admirable. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question, I guess I, I got out to Arizona and my first love was the gardening and planting and what have you, and that was a major challenge because the desert is not friendly for gardening. <laughs> you picked a tough hobby in Arizona. And I learned that if you plant it, the rabbits will come and eat it. And so we put a big cage in, so to speak, so I could garden and the rabbits and the animals couldn't get in and eat my produce. Pardon me, and then I started a greenhouse, which I had built, and I raised orchids in the desert. Oh, wow. And that was a challenge, and that was a wonderful hobby. I had about 300 orchids, and uh, it was a tussle between myself and all the aphids and the critters that liked the orchids, too. And the other thing I got involved in was photography, and that has kept me busy for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, at one point, I donated some of my photography to my GP doctor, and he was involved and still is involved in different things like hospice or what have you. And he's asked me to donate things to hospice facilities, which I've done in the cancer floor at our local hospital. So that continues to be an ongoing love of mine. Well, I've got a couple of your photographs. You did some nice photographs of Bandit, our dog, and I. I don't know if you remember that, but we, we've got him hanging prominently in our home, so we love those. But other than Bandit and I, what have been some of your favorite subjects or your favorite photographs that you've done? Anything that's a little bit out of the ordinary because everything in the world has been photographed at least a hundred times. And okay. One thing comes to mind, I went on a photo journey with Arizona Highways, and that's another story I put together with the help of some others, a nonprofit organization called Friends of Arizona Highways, and we run photo workshops, and we still continue to do that. And one of the workshops was to White Sands in New Mexico, which is really a beautiful place with white gypsum sand and I had this idea because you get great shadows and what have you to get a couple of gals to put on stockings or what have you that had stripes on them red and white stripes on one gal and black and white on the other and I took them out onto the sand dunes and they modeled for me and we just shot we just shot their legs with all those stripes and all the shadows and uh, that's a pretty unique photograph. I would say so. Very <laughs> unique. Very unique. So I, 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 I left out one of the important things that I did to try and keep myself occupied. Five years after I went into semi-retirement, Betty and I moved to Atlanta from Miami so we'd be close to Jason and Carrie and their kids. Get and, to see the grandkids, huh? And that took a fair amount of time to keep going to their various sporting events and their uh, school activities and so forth. So that, that took up some time as well. So let me ask you this, um, looking back on it now of that transition period, what advice would you give to yourself if you were going through it again as to the things to do or things not to do to help that transition be a positive one? Well, I should have probably uh, expanded my scope of, of interests, you know, to get beyond uh, the limited activities I was interested in. I probably should have done uh, I've gotten more interested in sports, which would have given me things to discuss with the grandkids, yeah. and uh, which I, I, did, I missed that topic. I uh, probably should have done a lot more exercise to stay better in shape, and um, uh, beyond that, I'm not sure what other advice I might give myself. That's, what, that's... what about you, Peter? What advice would you have for our listeners who are getting into the retirement years or thinking about retirement or sabbatical? I guess... 
not to be scared, but to run toward it. Um, everybody has to have interest of some kind, and it's just a matter of expanding those interests. In my case, for example, photography, being involved in setting up this nonprofit foundation that runs photo workshops that cost anywhere between $2,000 and $5,000, but we made a business out of it. And so it offered not only the opportunity for photography, but for marketing, like Ron was involved in, accounting, and all the different aspects of things that we all get involved with over the years. So, so it's almost like what I'm hearing from both of you is you almost have to be aggressive about this, almost as if it were a business, because it sounds like if you just sit back and let it come to you, it won't come to you. You have to assert yourself and get involved in certain things. I think that's a good observation. Absolutely. You have to be proactive. You cannot wait around. I think there's another interest that neither one of you mentioned that you may have in common here. And debt. I'm very surprised you didn't mention one of your weekly activities, poker. poker. Well, uh, yeah, for, for a while I was playing poker, you know, with some regularity, but I, I've kind of lost a bit of interest. I, I play once a week now. Um, I used to like to go to Las Vegas, um, but it's not, not the big deal for me that it used to be. You played in the World Series of Poker? I did play in the World Series of Poker one time, uh, but it was not the major big event. It was a, 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 one of the side events for seniors. And you and Mom gave me a, a, a two-day uh, class in yeah. poker in Las Vegas, which I went to one time, which was, which was fun. Um, but... but I had already reached an age where um, I had, for poker, you really need to be a good numbers person and right. a good memory about probabilities and so forth. I would reached the stage where I didn't want to really put up with all that. I didn't have the capability to continue all of that. So I still go a lot on intuition and, uh, and a general assessment of what the probabilities are rather than the specifics. So one of my great memories growing up was, I must have been in high school, I guess, but probably when you moved out to Arizona was when my father would take me and my brother to Las Vegas and he would we would go I think we stayed at Caesars every time we'd stay at Caesars and they had the great buffet right so <laughs> we, we ate it more, on more than hit, one occasion so we yes. hit the buffet the and, dinner buffet was the correct, best one by correct. the way <laughs> and then we would um, we would get a room but we would only go for one night because it was, it was just from Arizona it's no big deal and then we would put our stuff down and we would go and my dad would go play poker for the night and my brother and I, he'd give us each a hundred bucks and we would go blow it playing blackjack or usually craps we like. But we would always go bopping back and forth to watching him play poker. And poker to me was like this incredible, you know, I knew how to play poker. I grew up playing it with my friends and things or with my father, whoever. But it's like, to me, it was like this mystery, like you'd go into this mystery room and it was always like, <laughs> like I always just sort of feared it. It was, I don't know, maybe I thought the money, the stakes were hot, which I'm sure they were a lot higher than I had. Or whatever it was, but um, but I, I don't know. It's a fun. I mean, I can even watch it on TV now, and it's it's just exciting. Yeah. I'm curious as to what game you played, or you preferred, Peter. What, well, what that's the question I was hoping you would ask, because right? <laughs> I'm the guy that creates all the crazy games. Uh -huh. That's that's how seven of us or eight of us get together, and we, right. and the game that I remember and continue to play is called Putin. Putin. Right. Okay. Seven card stud. Jacks, queens, and kings are wild of the color that comes up. So you got your seven cards. If you have a 
jack and a queen and I have a jack and a queen and you pay $3 for them to turn over one card and you have black jack queens, kings, what have you, they're wild. If the card comes up red and you have black, all the people with the red card are wild. Uh, and the blacks are not. And the blacks are not. And we call it Putin because usually this, we, the red card is the card we, we look for most times. And so. <laughs> but, but what did you play when you were in Las Vegas? What oh, poker game? Just. Seven stud or? Seven. Or, or I, didn't even, I didn't even play that because these guys playing seven stud, pardon my pointing to you, didn't have any fun because they folded every time. I mean. <laughs> You'd start out with six guys at the table and they look at their cards and four of them would drop out. So you, that to me is no fun. Yeah. So I went to the blackjack tables basically. So my dad and I used to do father-son trips to Las Vegas all the time. And I still remember we used to stay at the Flamingo Hill and across the street from Caesars quite a bit growing up. And one time, Dad, you want to tell your greatest poker story ever? Well, I guess that would be the day that I, in playing seven stud, drew a uh, royal straight flush. Wow. Just drew it straight up. Well, yeah, because there's nothing wild in that game. In, in but the... you didn't dump cards and... No, no, you can't do any of that. No, it was just a pure, straight, seven-stud royal. So how did you play it? I, I guess I won. I don't know. But how did you bet? It. Like, huh? how did you bet, though? Did you... I honestly don't Try and draw them in? The only thing... Yeah, the <laughs> you have a big smile on your face and scare everybody away? <laughs> the, only, the only thing that I remember about that is that I asked to be able to keep the cards and the casino would not let me keep my hand, which kind of irritated me. That, but they gave you something in exchange. Do you remember? Well, a t-shirt the, or a hat? A hat, exactly. Yeah. A baseball <laughs> hat. That's exactly what it was. There's only a couple of stories I really remember from Vegas. The other thing is I used before, to play. Before, uh, regarding the Royal Flush, the guys in the suits didn't come over and question whether you were legitimate or not. Bring it to the basement. No, there wasn't enough money involved for that. <laughs> The only other thing, I, or one of the other things I remember about Las Vegas is playing at Bally's. And at about four in the morning, <laughs> they would bring out the most delicious Swiss cinnamon rolls, sweet rolls. <laughs> and I would, I would have to play until the, until the cinnamon rolls came. That's when you knew it was time to go home. ones folding every hand just, just so we could stick around the, to the cinnamon rolls. You spent like $150 to get the $5 cinnamon roll. There you go. Exactly. Right. There you go. That's too funny. They sure were good, though. Well, I think uh, two great, interesting retirement stories from uh, really probably how many years ago? We're talking, you know, 30, 40, 30 40 years 40 ago. 40 years. For 30, 40 years, years ago. Um, and I think a lot of lessons in there for, uh, for us and our listeners to learn as they start to think through uh, their retirement. So we appreciate both of you participating in this. But there is one more thing that you do have to participate in, which is... To take us to, to take another drink of the uh, of the deep a lime, lime vodka, vodka uh, which is an Austin product, I believe, right? It is Austin, Texas. And exactly. uh, try it, and you tell us what you think, because this is our chance to give our, our review. Actually, um, when I had the orange and lime flavored vodkas, they were very strong colors. It was a really a strong green color. Right. This is a little bit pale, and a really strong orange color. I mean, the, the flavor seems okay. I don't really remember it that well, but it <laughs> seems, seems okay. Yeah. 
Okay. I think it's really good. I'm not a drinker, and I don't have to go anywhere because I'm staying at Ken's house, so I can <laughs> drink all I want. There you go. We got about three quarters of the bottle left, Dad. Okay. Knock yourself out. Jason, what do you think? I like it. I like the Deep Eddy flavored vodkas. They've got a bunch of them that I think are all tasty. My favorite is probably the ruby red grapefruit one, yeah. which I think is awesome. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of almost margarita-like, which, yeah. and I'm a margarita fan, so uh, it's great to have this kind of right out of the bottle and put it on ice and goes down pretty easy. So that's what I was thinking is at first, I was, I, uh, we put it on ice and at first the ice hadn't sort of melted in there. So I was like, I don't love it because I'm not a big vodka person. But now that the ice is melted in, it tastes a little bit like a margarita. Um, and I, it's actually quite good. And we didn't add anything to it. No, I mean, this is just uh, straight up pretty good. So yeah. Deep Eddie, a good Austin company. I, I think they did this pretty good. That's a good I one. I like it. And we always do a toast to some recent celebrity retiree or something but i think for today's episode it would be a toast to our dads thank you for joining us thanks for sharing your stories and thanks for all you've done for us we appreciate it yeah and thank you for thank allowing you. us to bring you into the world yeah absolutely <laughs> well just a reminder to wrap things up don't forget to like share and tell your friends about the podcast give us some ideas for things that you want to talk about in the future people you want us to meet if you, we should come meet you and hang out with you and hear your retirement story and tell us the next drink we should try on uh, on the show so again share like tell your friends and send us an email what's next with j and k at gmail.com cheers cheers cheers, cheers.